Welcome to the Regista Room, the podcast where soccer goes off field. Here's your host, Paul Varian. Welcome again to the Regista Room, the podcast where amateur soccer goes off field. Paul Varian, glad to be with you as always. And thank you for all returning because it's been a while, hasn't it? Yes, the Regista Room's been on a bit of a summer hiatus as I had to turn my attention to a load of other pressing matters, including not least client work. Thank you, lovely clients. But also a load of volunteer work I've been doing recently for Kidsport, which I hope you know is a brilliant charity that raises money to help put financially disadvantaged kids into organised sports. And it's all been very important and very fulfilling, but also very time-consuming. So we find ourselves here suddenly in October, having last broadcast you way back in June. So what's happened since June? Well, you now need to take out a mortgage to buy an avocado. But we can't get mortgages anymore because the interest rates are higher than a hippie at Woodstock. And above all, we've learned you never, ever mess with Ukraine. But back to the soccer world. We seem to have muddled through the summer of amateur soccer, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Hi, all you Aussies and Kiwis and other antipoden register roommates heading into your summer now. And while it hasn't gone without its challenges, we've also seen some good stuff emerge as we tentatively creep back into the world post-pandemic. So let's start with the good stuff, and then you can just click past the bad stuff if you like. What's gone well? Well, I don't have hard data yet, but anecdotally, it appears from the many soccer club leaders I routinely speak to over the summer months that people have come back to play. You'll remember last year, we weren't so sure. Polling was suggesting in 2021 that roughly 25% of people may not come back due to COVID fears. But a few billion vaccines later, and the side of a hospital system that isn't crippled with people on ventilators, and people seem to have changed their minds. Registration rates appear, anecdotally at least, to not only to be back to 2019 levels, but in many cases beyond them, as much as what I can see as by 10 to 20 or 15 percent. And while a pandemic brought the soccer system to a standstill, it now appears that many soccer organizations actually haven't been terminally damaged financially. Not all, some obviously did not make it back, but a great many have. And this appears to be because many have virtually no major assets or long-term debts to service. So in 2020, they just turned the lights off, locked the doors, and waited for the pandemic to blow through, old-fashioned hunkering down, along with some government financial assistance, of course, in some countries that varied more than others. But it's meant that amateur soccer clubs have been pretty much able to reopen this year, 2022, relatively effectively as soon as public health restrictions allowed them to. The main problem seems to continue to be people, not the players, but volunteers and staff who make the soccer programs that players play in happen. Now, I spoke at length in the past registry episode this June about the crisis and match officials, but that's just one element of the problem we seem to continue to have in amateur sport at large with respect to how we fuel our system with necessary manpower. But let's park volunteers for the moment because it's going to be the theme of the next episode of the Register Room and we'll have plenty to discuss there. But for this episode, we're going to focus on the people who get paid, albeit sometimes not very well. Soccer staff, be they technical, coaching types, or the paper shuffling administrators. Hey, I can call them that. I was one myself, right? So let's be blunt. 
the last two and a half years for anyone who's left working in amateur soccer has been absolute hell. Many have left or been let go. So how do we restaff and perhaps more importantly and definitively more challenging, how do we reignite the passion in our legacy professional manpower and inspire them to rebuild the soccer system post-pandemic? So I went out to my social feeds to see what people think on this matter, and surprisingly, I only got one comment, which I guess means either people don't care about this topic or don't have anything to add. But Shanks and Paisley One chimed in with this observation. There seems to be very little movement and many clubs are still short-staffed, less than pre-pandemic levels. I don't expect that to change as clubs realise they can do more with less, and employee welfare doesn't seem to apply to our industry. Well, I certainly hope that's not the case, but to be honest, I would not be surprised if it is. I guess only time will tell. And it's interesting to see that some organisations are choosing to remain with some changes they had to make during pandemic times that actually didn't benefit the customer. I'll single out the restaurant industry here. Remember those skyrocketing increases in meal charges during the pandemic? We were told that it was because public health restrictions weren't allowing them to open at full capacity. We accepted that. But now those restrictions are gone, the price of a steak free doesn't appear to have come down. Now, maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe the cost of gas and produce to make those costs meant the restaurants just had to keep their prices up at pandemic levels. But you do wonder, right? As we try to work our way back as a soccer industry, we need some facts and hard data on where we are compared to 2019 on staffing and talent. I reckon we'd be here last year, so I took the decision back then to undertake an expansive research project examining the state of the Canadian amateur sports system as it was in 2019 and where it is now post-pandemic. The project took me a full year from start to finish and gathered diagnostic and opinion-based data from over 230 Canadian amateur sports organisations at community level in collaboration with 55 provincial sport governing bodies. Recently, I published the project findings and recommendations in a comprehensive report called the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check, which you can get hold of at capituslearning.com. Importantly, the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check includes salary serving for amateur sport, including for technical sport positions like staff coaches, technical directors, directors of coaching and performance managers. And as you probably know, benchmarking salaries on these positions is next to impossible because surveying of these specialised positions just is not done until now. So I thought I'd dedicate this episode of the Register Room today looking at the huge area of staffing in amateur soccer using the results of this fresh off the press report as a guiding context. So join me after the break as I bring back amateur sport human resource specialist Mark Thompson from McKinley Solutions as we discuss the results of the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check over a cup of coffee, interrupted by the endless pacing and tail wagging of my beloved golden retriever, Brooke. When you return on the Register Room. Are you an amateur sport leader looking for quality professional development? If so, your search is over. Introducing Capitalist Consulting's new sport business tutorial series. We'll teach you what you need to do to run your club better. These tutorials target the key areas of sport business, governance, risk, planning, marketing, technical oversight, sponsorship, and modern volunteerism. Access and enjoy these tutorials when you want and where you want. Go to capitaslearning.com and get learning with me today. Do you have a story to tell? The Regista Room is built on real-world stories and experiences from amateur soccer clubs everywhere that we can explore, discuss, and learn from. 
Have you innovated a solution to a problem? Challenged the norm? Tried something different? Thought outside the box or taken a risk? And it's paid off? If so, we want to hear from you on the Regista Room. Contact us today with your story at content at registaroom.com and let's better the game with our shared soccer experiences. Welcome back to the Regista Room. Hope you're all doing well. Now, those of you who've listened to earlier episodes of this podcast will know my guest today from discussion we had on board leadership back in the spring of this year. And by popular demand, I brought him back today to discuss more people issues, but more about the people we pay to do stuff rather than the people we get to volunteer to govern. Mark Thompson is Chief Engagement Officer at specialist human capital development firm McKinley Solutions. And aside from leadership development, training and HR system design, Mark's heavy in the recruitment business and has been literally run off his feet over the past 12 months with amateur sport executive recruitment assignments as sport organizations retool and staff up for a return to normal operations. And recently, he's been recruiting many positions at executive level, but also in business operations, technical leadership, and a whole lot more in many different sports. So I decided to bring him back for a coffee and casual chat about the current state of staffing in amateur soccer, focusing in particular on the findings of our recently released Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check. The conversation, as you're about to find out, was compelling. Grab a coffee yourself, sit back and have a listen. Mark Thompson of McKinley Solutions for the second time. Welcome to the Register Room. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. For having me. Yeah, well, here we are yet again, casually with cups of coffee, um, pets walking across, <laughs> ruining the quality of the broadcast. <laughs> it's a really professional outfit we got here, Mark. <laughs> Last time we had you on, I think it was February, March of this year, we spoke about board leadership and all sorts yep. of issues, particularly around onboarding and, 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 and development of boards and all the things that people don't do so well and how we could do better around board leadership. But six, seven months later, we have a new report out, which we just released, Capus Consulting, called the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check, which looks at all things amateur sport in Canada pre and post pandemic. But one of the reasons I'm really glad to sit with you at my kitchen table with our wonderful cups of coffee is to talk about the staffing side of it and a little bit about the, I guess, the uh, the volunteering side of it as well, because you can't really talk about people in amateur sport without no, talking can't. about volunteers. And obviously, McKinley, you're your market leaders in uh, sport executive search, and you've been doing a lot of work, I know, this year post-pandemic as uh, a lot of organizations staff up and re-engineer their staffing systems really post-pandemic. So it's great to have you on today to help critically analyze what's come out of this report, see what trends you see, and, uh, and what you're seeing in the marketplace, because I think a lot of register roommates listening to this are pretty interested to know how the market shifted what they're worth what opportunities are out there and importantly how the job how the employment market or sorry this human resource market whether it's paid or, or or volunteer is coming back and where so i guess initially mark like tell us a little bit about some of the assignments you've been doing recently and how you see i guess particularly the executive market in amateur sport in canada uh, compared to maybe six months a year ago so a couple of things. Actually, you just mentioned something, but I want to say it before I forget. Go is ahead. The, re, uh, the reevaluation of the design. And I think uh, we've got one client right now, and I, having read the report multiple times, it didn't even clue into me because I was so focused on that senior leadership capacity and what we we're going to talk about today. But 
this element of redesigning what you've got. So mm-hmm. some teams skinning down during the pandemic as yeah. it shares in the report. Some were able to remain healthy and whole uh, and keep their core staff and leverage a lot of the support mechanisms that were there. And the smart ones did. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that we are challenging a couple of our current clients on is if you had 10 staff before and you skinny down to six, mm-hmm. do you need 10 or do you need 12? Do you, did you have the right people in the right seats on the mm-hmm. bus? And one of the my biggest pet peeves with amateur sport is, did you actually document what they were accountable for? Exactly. Because we find time and time again, we get into an organization and I'll ask somebody what they do and they go, well, I'm busy, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I say, well, can you show me your job description so I know how to help develop you for the next mm. stage? Mm. And they go, I've been here five years and I've never seen a job description. Yeah, and it's interesting because that I, my experience of that, I see a lot of that sort of human resource chaos when you go in and look at organizations. I think it almost just gets built up through just the the enormous intensity of just trying to get programs out the door and gradually people's job descriptions start to shift and somebody leaves. So it's like, oh, why don't you just do a cover for them and then they never get replaced. And, you know, let's not let executive management off the hook here. It's their job to, to keep this structured and on point. But it seems that COVID sort of showed how, you know, chaotic and reactive our staffing systems and amateur sport have become. And it's interesting to see that you're being asked to sort of realign them along with this upstarting well, the, process. The piece that I would say pre-pandemic, it was a nice to get to. And yeah, it exactly. became even more a nice to get to. Uh, and I mean, you've got to be, I couldn't even point to a client of mine that has HR capacity in-house. It's always the executive director that's got to do it yeah. or your technical lead. Um, I mean, if you're lucky, you might have some competence you can lean on within a board structure. But I wouldn't even recommend that because yeah. HR at an operational level should be owned at an operational level. A board yeah. should never go near it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's a nice to get to. And now they're sort of as organizations reshuffle and redesign and really look, do we have the right people in the right seats on the bus? I mean, it's an old expression, but it's true. And sport, I'm, I, I hate to say it, is very... Uh, complacent and going, well, that worked in 2017. Why don't we just go back to that? Yeah, for sure. It seems to me as well that, you know, you're right. A lot of organizations did unfortunately have to downsize and train, well, sometimes completely obliterate their staff. Yeah, more than you know. So I'm getting a lot of calls as well from people trying to take this as an opportunity to restructure their staffing based on what they need. What do you think are the main skills uh, at a corporate level, I suppose, that amateur sport organizations are finding or discovering that they need that they maybe were oblivious to or didn't need as much pre-pandemic? I would say strategic thinking and critical thinking. Yeah. Uh, And the big shift is business acumen. Right. I mean, if uh, we did a technical lead hire that started in August, it was a little bit of a protracted search over over COVID. Uh, but the main differentiator and the, and the person that ended up getting the successful was the successful candidate was head and shoulders when it came to business acumen, human resource management, and the ability to go, where do we want to be from five years from now, as opposed to what do we need to do on the court? Yeah. And that ability to think I'm running a multi-million dollar business might only be two million, but that's still more than one. Yeah. It's a community level club. They're a big institution. But for 12 years, they never had any business leadership. Yeah. yeah. They had it, some of it in the board, yeah. but now the big, their big shift is we need to do it within the staff. We, we have the luxury to do it within the staff because of our size. Not all organizations do. 
Uh, but if you're going to invest, like from a professional development side, if you're a small club and you're going to say, let's invest in our senior leadership, be the technical leader, your operational lead, if you've got the luxury of both, and you send them off to the, the NSO conference, fabulous. I'd be saying, what type of micro course can, on business acumen can we get from, from one of the universities or one of the colleges? What can we source online through LinkedIn Learning? I mean, <clears throat> there's a variety of skill building that you can do quick and on the fly. Yeah, yeah. But we have a tendency within sport to go, let's make you technically stronger. Yes. And we forget they're running a business. Well, it's interesting because, and I don't think that is just limited to sports because I, as you do, I, I know as well, know plenty of people who work in broader arts organizations yeah. or broader not-for-profit organizations. And one of the things I saw, there was one organization that was looking to hire a new executive director. And traditionally, the executive directors had always come from artistic backgrounds. Right. Um, and so not only was that not helpful in terms of an understanding of business, it meant it was the same group of people getting hired and rehired because they're all from the arts yeah, community. Think. Yeah. And then COVID came. And with that came a realization of all of these business skills that they needed, particularly business leadership around risk. Totally. And they suddenly decided, no, we should maybe hire somebody who's worked in the arts but has business training and business background. Yeah. And that person's excelled. Um, but it was a real... They didn't come to that decision mark. It was no. forced upon them with COVID. And I'm wondering what you're saying about all these... This this move towards business acumen is because COVID has has really exposed the, the the lack of business acumen that we had before, and organizations that did not do well through that period did so because they didn't have that management of risk, that understanding of financial strength, core capability, advanced planning, all the things that business does normally. Yeah, I, um, to be honest, I wouldn't have thought about it that way, but pro probably. Yeah, uh, I've been beating the drum. The reason that I say I hadn't thought about it, it's probably. Um, <clears throat> was exposed more during COVID is probably yeah. the way I'd see it. I would say the problem's been around a lot longer than that. Yeah. And, but I would say, yes, you're right. The and But I would also push it further to say, like, if you go back, if anybody want to go, goes back to the podcast Paul and I did in the winter, was I would also suggest that the business acumen and the understanding at a board level is also lacking. Mm. You got a lot of well-meaning people yeah. put up their hand and want to want to give back to their club, but if you don't have the right acumen on your board, you suffer during COVID as well. Let alone your operational staff. Yeah. So I think there's at all levels, but the staffing level. If you have a big enough institution that you can afford paid staff, uh, the biggest, as you've said, I've been beating the drum longer, but I would say probably I got exposed a heck of a lot more during COVID. Yeah. And it's, but, you know, just looking at some of the salary surveying we've done in the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check Mark, and I'm excited to be able to do this because I don't know about you, but the number, I haven't seen reports until this one that actually has sports specific salary surveying. We see a lot of general, you know, executive salary surveying, but, you know, proper salary surveying on technical directors, coaches, all these sorts of positions is for the first time we have it and it's quite interesting reading. But I think there's two things I would say in general about the salary surveying information we have in this report. First one, generally speaking, salaries are up from 2019 to 2022, which is good. Absolutely. Um, however, would you not agree that we're still desperately underpaying 
Yeah. Uh, oh. He's a way under market, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly, I mean, looking at the, the, the salary, you know, one of the areas I've sort of noticed as well, people are start, starting to understand they need a lot more now is digital marketing, digital communications expertise. But looking at the number there, and you have to buy the report, folks, if you want to see the number. <laughs> but uh, which is, of course, at capitalistlearning.com. Need, need, to, need to obviously let you guys know about that. But that number, and even though it's increased marginally, that's nowhere near. Right, what you're going to get for that kind of position? No, and funny you should say that. We've got a search going on right now for an event. Uh, what's it? A membership and events uh, mm-hmm. a person in a in a small organization, team of less than six. So, like you've got comparisons in the report, more than six and less than six. So, less than yeah. six. And as we were going through the job, they said, "Okay, well, they're going to do this, and they're going to do this, and they're going to travel on this." And I'm going, "Okay, well, what's the salary? Well, it's." It's yeah. well below market, and yeah. they know that. And and then they said, "Oh yeah." And then and then we got to we have to find somebody that understands social media because we got to do that too. And they're going to shove that into the event role. Yeah. And to me, the marketing aspect of it is, um, it when you shove it into a role and give it to somebody as opposed to purposefully design the role, you notice. I mean, I follow all of our organizations as well as the prospects as well as a whole pile of other ones uh, on clubs right up to the NSO level. The ones that have taken a professional, purposeful approach to it yeah. are winning. It's a peculiar discipline, though, because for some reason, people don't seem to give it the credit as being a trained discipline. So it's like, I'm good on Facebook, therefore I'm a marketing manager. Absolutely. And, and or as you say, it's just bolted onto a, a, a role that people might think And that's think not is, fair to anybody? It's not fair, least of all the incumbent. Absolutely. So what we've actually suggested, if you can't afford to do it properly, think differently about yeah, it. Yeah, good, good advice. So what we've said is like this, this, this group is actually hosting a major event coming up, an uh, uh, um, yeah. uh, Eastern Canada event. And I've said, well, if you can't afford to do it properly, at least for that event, then let's go to the community colleges and universities and get some co-op students that are going to give you a lot of energy for a short period of time. And they've got a professor watching them and what they're doing. So yeah. if you can't afford to do a paid position, let's go and get a, let's go after a co-op opportunity. They're paid a little bit less. You can get the funding back in certain models, but let's not bolt this on to be a nice to have. And what we found in that role in particular is somebody does their day job all day, gets home and does the social media at night. Mm. And they do it because they're passionate about the sport, they're passionate about the organization, but basically they're volunteering at that point. And that's not fair to a paid position. No, no. Let's switch gears a little bit and look at executive uh, executive compensations and executive um, staffing trends. I think what was interesting is, you know, we, we obviously broke this out regionally and looked at the numbers regionally. We didn't really report in the report much about regional variations in salary for the simple reason that really we didn't find that much variance, Agreed. Mark. Like, I mean, people say, oh, that people are paid far more in Vancouver than Halifax or something. Not we actually experience. didn't find discernible differences, no. you know, especially with the ability to work remotely now. Yeah. So, but what we did notice is organizational size has quite a profound in- impact. And so if, you, if you're a sport organization that's got a staff of more than six, which may not sound much to corporate people, but in the amateur sport business, that's quite a sizable organization. Absolutely. They are paid much more than if you, if you have less than six, where you're probably going to be more of a hands-on practitioner, right? Right. What's your sense of that in, say, in the organizations you're dealing with? I would say they're paid more because you're actually more than likely asking them to do more. Right. Uh, and the big piece is managing HR. So, yeah, exactly. It's, and that is a huge differentiator because we find from a retention side of things, if you've got a staff bigger than six – 
then that aspect of professional development, investing in your staff, it needs to be across all sport, don't get me wrong, mm. but there's a higher expectation when you're in a bigger institution that I'm gonna grow and develop and I'm gonna be mentored. And that's where we're finding junior staff leaving organizations and we've had multiple clients in, in COVID going, they said they, you know, I was hired at the beginning of COVID to do this job. And now I've done these three other jobs since, and I'm just getting back to my other job right now. And oh, by the way, I've had six other offers from across the country for more money. Really? Yeah. And these are technical, competent individuals. And they were able, one client in particular was able to retain two of them that had multiple offers nationally. And they focused in on one, getting their pay to essentially what they should be paid because they were a little under market value. Right. But a commitment with a new, strong technical leader that was put them on a professional development plan that we're going to make you stronger next year than you are today. Yeah. And yeah. that was a big differentiator to the, both of those individuals are younger than 35. Yeah. So that investment in them weighed more than just getting paid more. Now that we need, they need to increase the monies, but it's bigger than that for technical people under 35 because they want to know where, what they're going to get stronger at. Yeah, I mean, it's not in the report here as much, but but it's. A, I want to sort of expand what you're talking about, this notion of, of investing in your people rather than having to constantly look for new ones. Because totally. we can all agree now that this great resignation isn't some media hyped up notion. That's that's for It's for real, right? A lot of people have changed, not just jobs, but lifestyles and even packed up bags and moved different places. Out of country. Out of country or, <laughs> you know, a colleague I know, was a, quite a high-level executive in a in a sports governing body. Sold up and bought twenty acres up north, and is now aiming to be a subsistence farmer. <laughs> and he's doing great; like That's he's awesome. never been happier. And good yeah, for him. Yeah. But there's been some quite dramatic changes in this whole pandemic, and I think people are still psychologically working their way through it. Yeah. But you know, tell, tell, talk to me a little about training development. Just why is it that this sector? doesn't rate it and i know everyone's going to come back now and say paul it's just we don't have enough money but do you buy that or is it is it is it something deeper that, that we don't seem to invest in our people and we're surprised when they leave you know oh i think it's bigger than sport but i think sport yeah. it's uh it's exacerbated because people say we don't have enough money hmm. and it's about how you use the money and it's about budgeting accordingly our clubs that are that are a little bit more on the sophisticated side going well you know and again, the other the other piece that I would say is if you're going with an old school technical lead, they believe that, you know, it was done on the court, on the ice, on the pool deck, whatever, what have you, that you follow me and you do what I say. Yes. As opposed to, well, let's go and look at a different sport to learn from them. Let's mm. look at youth development. Let's look at the mental health impact. Mm. I mean, if you have if you're not training your staff on the mental health impact of the pandemic on young athletes, you're not doing your club a, a service. Yeah. Whether it be just getting access to that information, training them on that. I mean, the the it doesn't have to be complicated is my point. Yeah. But you've got to do it purposefully and you have to invest regularly in them. And what I mean by regular you got to participate in your in your either PSO or NSO conferences, and you need to think outside from a competency side of things. So like I suggested earlier, as simple as if someone wants to be a stronger technical lead and they're a staff coach now, I would set them up on a LinkedIn learning account and say, what do you, competencies do we need to work on with you? 
Hmm. Very cost effective, learn at your own pace, and we can develop from there. But you need to build a plan for anybody under 35. If they want to be their own technical lead at one point or executive hmm. lead, <clears throat> and you've got people that report to you, especially under 35, they need to see a plan on how they're going to become stronger. Well, you, th- th- that's what I wanted to sort of tease out with you is you sort of mentioned that this matters to candidates. So this is the difference, just like sort of workplace, work, workplace terms is, is one of the first questions in an interview now with millennials in particular, so I'm told. people Statistically, it's the second highest. When you go broad business, yeah. the highest people join or leave an organization is their relationship with their direct boss. Yes. And partly direct with their team. Yeah. The second biggest thing is high as 76% in some reports. It's my investment in me and my training and development, professional development. Yeah. Pay is below 50% of why they would join or leave an organization. Yeah. But... Above 80 is my relationship with my direct boss. Yes. Above 70, again, on a variety of different reports, is the investment in me and making me a better me. Yeah. And when you correlate that into uh, an industry like amateur sport that thinks development is, I'm going to go from a, t- uh, a technical level one to a technical level two and a technical level two to a technical level three. Yeah. That's not the broad-based learning that we need anymore. That's you know, development for the sake of moving up a rank and maybe moving up one salary rung. If you're going to get a broad-based development into people and they expect it on a younger age bracket, you got to go bigger and you have to budget for it annually. Mm. And I've had boards push back saying, Marco, we can't budget for it. I say, so in your organization, do you budget for professional development or do you expect people to just get better on their own? And 100% of people come back and go, oh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Because every organization corporately that sits there, whether it's an entrepreneur, an organization your size or my size, you and I are investing in ourselves and investing in our teams, and we don't have big teams. Yeah. But you take it right up to Fortune 500, big institutions, banks, et cetera, and you challenge them when they sit at a board level to go, well, do you not invest in your staff? And they go, huh, never thought about it that way. How does your amateur sport organization measure up post-pandemic? Need to know? Capitalist Consulting is proud to bring you the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check. The first comprehensive study of the Canadian amateur sport industry at community level, examining how it was before the pandemic and how it looks now. Built on data from hundreds of organizations just like yours, this report helps you measure your organization's recovery from the pandemic against others across the country. Participation rates, volunteer levels, sponsorship valuations, program fees and costs, and staff salary levels that give you market rates for sport job positions you simply can't find anywhere else. It's all here and much more. The Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check. Get your copy today at capitalslearning.com. Imagine not having the chance to play sports as a kid. Imagine not having those memories, those experiences. Imagine your childhood without them. If I wasn't able to play, I would have missed my friends. I will miss being active and the chance of being competitive. Basketball has taught me how to work as a team, how to communicate and how to adapt to any situation. My goal is to play for Team Canada and make it to the WNBA. The skills kids learn through sports are carried with them throughout their lives. But all across Canada, kids are being left on the sidelines because they don't have the resources to play. We owe all kids a chance to experience everything that sport has to offer. 
Help unleash the full potential in every child. Visit kidsport.ca so all kids can play. We're with uh, Mark Thompson here of McKinley Solutions. If you're wondering what the banging noise is, is Mark is literally banging the table. I'm he gets, sorry. He gets very enthusiastic about this I'll area. try and sit still. No, no, it's great. You you, you do it. I just want to let the register roommates know that the microphone is not faulty, but this guy really cares about this about this area. But let's go back because you asked earlier about sal- uh, the CEO salary expectations. Sure. So there's something that I think is important to understand is we're seeing a trend one, we grossly underpay the people at an executive level mm. uh, and a technical level, whether mm. that be the general manager, business mm. operations, CEO, or your director of coaching, mm. technical director. That's yeah. sort of the lump of five that I would say. Yeah. I refer to them or we refer to them as your operational leaders. The big shift, though, that we've seen of late is one, and I think it says somewhere in here, I can't point to the page. What's more, what is over and above the salary? Hmm. So we're seeing, oh, wait a second, at a club level, we need benefits. Some of our biggest club level clients only added benefits in the last five years. Yeah. And I'm, and these these folks are, some folks have been with the, been with the organizations 10 years. They've got young kids. And the, like, if you're going to attract anybody in today's world and you don't have a benefits plan and you're a, a group of six and larger... Every there's all kinds of opportunity for you to go out and buy those things now, and I think you're doing yourself a disservice. You can probably point to it, Paul, in the report. No, I know, I know what you mean. It's just we asked them, you know, do you offer benefits and what kind of benefits? And there was quite a staggering low number of organizations that offer them, and the benefits they offer are not particularly sophisticated. In some cases, it was just a cell phone or something like that, or parking. So let's let's just tease this out because you know you mentioned before that salary is way down the list of what people actually quit <clears throat> and want a job for, and you're right. Boss, workplace environment, um, training, personal development, culture, yeah, culture. Um, that's all more important. Is, is this? Is there a way do you think the amateur sports system can use some of the some of some of this to its advantage? And, and what I mean by that is a lot of, and it came out in the report, a lot of these organisations were virtual before the pandemic. Correct. Came so the notion of working from home or having flexible hours is not as like culturally, you know, groundbreaking for not-for-profit as it would have been for big corporations where you're constantly in the Absolutely. office nine to five. Is that, yeah, I'm hearing a lot, that's a very important component of what you're going to offer modern staff people, particularly millennials, uh, or people who are faced with big communities. Should we be bringing out as a sector more things that, you know, we can't pay you what you want, but my we'll goodness, yeah, we, we'll, we'll do the best we can. We're nice people here who care. Um, we're going to respect your family life and, and time. We're going to let you work from home and make be responsible for your decisions. And you're really going to enjoy what you do and feel like you're making a difference. Do we, I don't know if you really tell that story enough. No, we don't sell it. But I would also suggest, though, one of the things that came out during COVID was we also lost track of what people were actually doing. Well, that's and, true. And I'm not faulting anybody for it. But we've got a couple of organizations right now that are in for a culture sock when we're going to talk about mandatory office hours because they went completely virtual during the pandemic yeah. and a lot of good people doing good things is not a strategic plan as i've no. said that for years but one of the things that we do know about millennials in particular they do like to be held accountable and they do like to be measured and when the pandemic hit and everybody would just scattered and went home they're like hey this is a great lifestyle yeah but now they're like i'm unfulfilled well, i'm unfulfilled or or, oh, why, why are you asking me to check in? Like, yeah. you haven't for two years. Well, the world was a gong show for two years. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? We're running 
a big organization and we need and one of the things that we are we are seeing organizations both corporately and in the not-for-profit sports space is you need to teach managers how to manage in a hybrid work environment. That's right. So if you've always been virtual and you've learned how to do it, and you and I know yeah. some sport executives that have always been virtual and know how to do it, but if you've been a bum and seat office mm. and all of a sudden you're now in a hybrid work environment and you've not trained your either line managers or your executives on how to manage in a, in a hybrid work environment, you're leaving it to chance. Mm. And in some respects, you're also setting them up for failure because it is a very different management style. It's a very different leadership style. And most importantly, it's a very different communication style that requires purposeful design and construction on how you communicate. So you're not micromanaging or, mm. you know, thinking they're not doing anything when they're doing everything or vice versa. But, but it's actually, you know, it's worth the investment because when you can get people to manage people remotely, you're moving to a leadership style rather than the supervisory style so you'll get a better leader at the end of the day but you're right it comes with all kinds of complications and i think one of the stats i saw was um staff (coughs) staff productivity was down i think 29.3 percent or something like that during the pandemic so the notion of people working remotely might sound great and some people might like it more but as far as business productivity is concerned it, it wasn't working as well and anecdotally i'm hearing people just gradually trying to get people back to the office maybe not elon musking it and just saying you're back or you're fired <laughs> but but gradually it seems i wonder whether three years ago when we're doing this podcast again whether the notion of this hybrid model that we thought was here to stay whether it'll still be around yeah and i would suggest in sport it probably will be because in sport you know you yeah. there is when you're in peak season work-life balance is a little out of whack yeah you're working weekends depending on the role you have if you're on the event side of the business you're working around the yes. clock yes but in the non-event days, you're not. So, like, I think it's here to stay. But I think from a design side of things, um, the model that we're recommending is you, the the work you do, the collaborative-based work, is done when days are in the office. If you're going into the office to get on another Zoom call, then you've not designed your work week or your workflow properly. So when you're in the office with your teams... Let's do the brainstorming. Let's do the collaborative-based work. Let's do the problem-solving that you get around a whiteboard and bounce ideas off each other. Because while we can say that was effective during COVID, you had to have a very strong, masterful facilitator in order to do that. And those skills exponentially grew with everybody, and there are very big specialists in this, but they don't exist within sport. Yeah. You And so that let's get around a table, let's solve this problem, let's think creatively about it. That's what I refer to as the collaborative based work. Yeah. And you can do that two to three days a week and give people the opportunity to work from home the other two to three days a week. Yeah. But you've got to design it on a, what we're recommending is a two week workflow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, okay, this is, we're planning this out. It's not... The normal sport reaction, I've got a coaching client I work with right now at an NSO, and he goes, oh, so the normal chaos of sport, we look at what's on fire on our inbox and we react to that. <laughs> he says, so you're designing it properly. And this is a senior senior yeah. person within sport, been around sport in multiple countries. And he says to me regularly, Mark, that's just sport. I said, it doesn't have to be. No, that's so, a very good point. So I just want to loop back on this, yeah, this compensation side of things. We can't just focus on base salary anymore. You mm. need to think about what you're doing. Yeah. And... It is not uncommon for us to see senior executives demand a when they're negotiating a professional development budget for them and a discretionary professional development budget for their direct reports. Yes. Because if it doesn't exist, they want control over it, but they want one individually for themselves and one for their team. Yeah. The other one is benefits have got to be on the table. No question. And we had one 
uh, one uh, one organization will lead defer the benefits and take salary and as as opposed to it because they had already had their own benefits package because of where they had been in other sports. Right. None of it was offered, so they bought their own and they were comfortable with it. So they negotiated salary instead. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about volunteers because sure. it would be it would be silly not to talk about where most of the human capital in the sector is, which is in, in the, the volume. Actually, no, before I go there, there's one thing I want to do touch on in the report, um, which people should be aware of. The areas of salary increase that seem to be the highest are actually in technical line staff yes, positions. Totally so agree. staff coaches are, are, are well up, and um, anyone responsible for match officials or umpires or referees, that's that position is well up as well. And that's no surprise because... Uh, my last uh, episode of the Reduced Room documented, uh, at least in the soccer industry, how there's been such a catastrophic uh, lack of return of match officials. Clearly, organizations are combating this by trying to either create positions that are uh, are there to take the, the, the recruitment and development of officials more seriously uh, or compensating their people better. But it's interesting to see that the market is suggesting that we want to cover our key assets in the field who, who, who are delivering the programs yeah. um, ahead of anything else. And that's not unsurprising when you see the return rates that have come back this year. But I guess that's also good to see in many respects that people who are looking to work in this industry and they're going to start in those positions, those positions are getting better compensated. They're still not, you're still not retiring on the, no. off to the Cayman Islands and what they're earning, but they're certainly much more robust than they were, you know, even a few years ago. Let's segue into the volunteerism because... You know, you sort of mentioned, and again, uh, something in this report that, that I was quite shocked by, and I, I'll let the, the register roommates see the specifics of it for themselves, but there seems to be, you know, I'll call it a general giving up yep. on the notion of volunteerism, the way it's always been, being the way we can solely run our, our industry moving forward. There's a, there's a recognition that we either have to give them better incentive move to more of a salaried model or do something, we can't just simply just expect these people to turn up at our door and give us free time. And what the sector thinks it should be, I guess, depends on individual circumstances. But size of club too. It's every size of organization. But what, what was your sense of that? I mean, I guess it's been a long time coming. I shouldn't be surprised, right? Well, I think it's a long time coming, but the numbers that, sh- that are shared in the report are higher than I thought. Mm. No question. Um, <coughs> but... I think the piece that I think is where you can, I think it's important to see what you can do to pay people. Um, and that means relooking at your budgets. I mean, I, I've run a small organization for 20 years now. I mean, we've got associates across the country, but I always believed in, you know, my assistants have always been, uh, for, well, always been, for the better part of about 10 years, were educated stay-at-home moms that wanted to work 10 to 2. And I was able to get a higher level of sophistication to support my organization personally by working with different hours for these individuals. So you might not go have to go to a full-time staffing model for an individual all the time yeah. Yeah. if you're willing to work with them on the flexibility of what you're working with. Yeah. So, But my recommendation is if you can figure out how to pay somebody a little bit of money, they feel rewarded and they're doing something and you're not saying, well, we need to hire four more full-time staff because that's just not feasible. You've got to look at the model differently. There's no question. But on the volunteerism side, I think it's been a long time coming. I think we've seen models in just in my own kids' sports where, you know, 
you, you cut a check at the beginning of the year, and if you didn't do your volunteer hours, mm, yeah. we're going to ding you. Yeah, the participation yeah. fees the report refers to. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was a uh, – and I think that might have worked for about three months. Yeah. And then people went, oh, that's just part of the cost of doing – that became gets, part gets, of my fees. Gets me out of volunteering. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I saw one institution that we were a part of for a long time, and um, I thought it was great. First thing it said right across their webpage on the volunteerism was – we will charge you, but your time's worth more to us than your dollars. Yeah. And here's why. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that I think we fall down on. I, I mean, I was talking to a president the other day. They've got, to, they've got to fill out a couple of their committees. And I said, well, so what's the message you're going to put out? And they said, well, we're going to put out, we need, a, we need some people for the HR committee and the audit committee, uh, audit and finance committee. Great. Great. Where do I sign up? What else are you going to put out there? I said, in the city that both of those are in, uh, those are two, sorry, uh, one organization, two roles, they want to fill out the committees a little bit because we're a big believer in filling your boards with committee, committee, people that have been on committees before, get better expertise, et cetera, et cetera. But they were going to put one line out there. We need somebody on the finance and audit and somebody on the HR. I said, you got to sell this. You got to do it as a job ad. You got to do it as what's required. And the big thing that we're finding is if you don't tell people what the commitment is, no one's going to sign up. Hmm. So we, f- we help them flip the, the dialogue move to, well, what do you mean? I said, well, how much time is the audit finance committee? Well, during the audit, it's during the audit month, it's five hours of time. And then in the other months, it's, uh, it's reviewing the budget on a, a year to date on a quarterly basis. Call that 90 minutes. Put that in the ad. So again, it's while we're here talking about salary and compensation, you need to factor in how you need to treat them like they're employees. But you see, again, what's fascinating to me is like it's arguably the most important resource we have in amateur sports. Absolutely, it is. And yet, there was a staggering number of organisations in that report that said they don't actually have the the job of volunteerism assigned to any staff member. Absolutely, which is like what? Yeah. Um, And and then beyond that. You know, there doesn't seem to be much strategies outside of just asking your parents or asking, you know, which which may work in high participation sports where there's lots of parents. But if you're a diving club, I mean, no. you, you're talking about, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 parents maybe to, to, to go to the well on. And that, that just kind of doesn't work. But, you know, we have a tutorial on this, as you know, a yes. tutorial on, on volunteerism. 20th century what do we call it? we call it 21st century sport volunteerism because it's so different now to how it was and some of the the ways people are behaving particularly millennial volunteers the way they look at the world what they're looking for out of volunteers of how long they're going to commit for what they're prepared to do is so different we haven't moved the system to capture that at all even just to your point even just explaining and, and creating some sort of a, a motive to do it other than oh I'll feel bad yeah. if I don't which is that's a crappy uh, People get over that pretty quickly. Yeah, well, what will you do? You'll probably put in the minimum you have to yep. and then try to get off the job. Yep. So that's not really what you want. No, absolutely not. And I think to me, this it, it, we have to sell. Like if I go across, our, if I were to go across our client base right now, there probably is, I couldn't even point to one. That's not true. I couldn't point to one. No, I could terminate probably less than a handful have a dedicated page on volunteerism. It just is odd to me that we don't still see this discipline worthy of servicing. I think the other thing that was interesting to come out of the report, Mark, was, you know, we asked them, why do you think volunteers are, are harder to find and why they've declined particular coaches? 
And obviously a lot of stuff came up was pandemic related, but a really interesting one that was hidden in there that was quite significant, like a lot of people um, said this is the case, was they, and fair play to the industry for acknowledging this, they just said we're not doing a good enough job attracting people, particularly young people. Yes. So, and that's nothing to do with the pandemic. So is it a matter of just, just seriously just realigning this role and having it find a place? And I don't care if that's a committee. It can be volunteers finding volunteers. Is it a matter of that? Because we actually have the next episode of Other Register Room is on volunteers. Oh, cool. And one of the, I can't wait to get this, this interview out because one of the interviews I did of, is of a case study of a soccer organization regime. And they've actually hired a journalist to go find stories about why people Fantastic. should volunteer. And they put it up on not only a website, but they, they throw it out all the time. So they make volunteerism something people want to do, yep. not have to do. And they've invested in professional news reporting and storytelling services to do it. And they're not a big club, Mark. No. They're, this isn't like a big 10, 15,000 player club. Quite on the contrary, it's quite small. Right. And not in a major metropolitan area. So oh, I they can it. do it. Absolutely. Right? This aspect of risk has changed the game. Absolutely. And I think for me, the other piece that I think we need to be very careful about with volunteers is educating them on what we do as an organization to manage the risk on their behalf. Very good. And I don't, it doesn't come up in the report no. as much, but to me, if I'm putting myself forward with some of the state of sport right now, <clears throat> I'm going to volunteer. I need to know what you're going to do for me to protect me. And I think that's an important part that has to get to the governance and strategic level. And you're going to, you need to educate volunteers on that. Well, it's 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 funny. I was going to actually mention it before we sign off on this on this discussion, but there's two major areas in terms of change, fundamental change in the system, and this is definitely happening here in Canada, but I'm sure it's happening around the world just to, to some to a greater or lesser extent. Is you can't just expect volunteers to turn up anymore. You've got to start investing in it as a base operating spend. Totally. And the second one is you cannot leave your sport environment unmanaged from a safety standpoint nope. that is here to stay you have to put that in as a base operating spend and people say that's going to add so much cost to me i'm going to have to pass it on in fees yeah yes <laughs> you will and sorry <laughs> so let's go to an average sport consumer particularly you so let's go to a parent right you're you're a son <coughs> of two national level swimming boys right yep. let's go to you and say look mark you're, the guys are going off on all kinds of meets all around the country and you know around North America and who knows maybe more. We've discovered that if we put them in a dangerous environment where their safety might be compromised, we can save you fifty bucks on your fee. How good is that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, this. it's it's the most ridiculous value proposition. I mean, the idea that we compromise our kids' safety to try and save the cost of a cup of coffee is ludicrous. And I think you know, as a system, we have to have the courage to unashamedly pass that cost on to sport consumers, understanding that everyone's struggling, but that safety and, and resourcing of our system is absolutely fundamental priority. We can't do it with a flat operating cost base. And going back to the staffing point of view, and you, it's a very good point you make, Mark, we have to make sure that people who choose to work in this industry or volunteer in this industry understand that they're not being left hung out to dry on their own in isolation that the system is there to support them and protect them and train them 
in what is a very difficult position of responsibility at times. And I think you nailed the first one. You have to tell your volunteers how you're going to train them to lead properly. Correct. And coach properly. And it can't just be all on them. They're going to put their time in. You got to cover the costs on that. You got to tell them where you want to get them to. You got to help them see what the benefit is to do that. Yeah. And you got a lot of people that are willing to put up their hand. We find the more we tell our clubs that we work with, tell people what you need from them, hour wise, expectation wise, tell them how you're going to protect them, and tell them what the benefit is, not to your kid to the sustainability of this organization, mm. that it's going to be here for generations to come and that it's not just about the three years your kid was in sport. Need help managing your amateur sport organization but don't know where to turn? Look no further than Capitus Consulting, your dependable partner to help you through the challenges and issues you routinely face in and around your sport boardroom. At Capitus Consulting, we're different. We've directly managed amateur sport organizations from community club to national governing body. We understand your side of the fence because we've been there ourselves. We know from experience what makes sport organizations successful and where they go wrong. Reach out to us today at capitusconsulting.ca and let's start building your sport business today. Want to tell us what you think of the show and things we could do to make it better? Tell us now at comments at registaroom.com. So, Mark, before I let you go, I mean, what's... Go ahead. Go Sorry, I, just, I wanted yeah. to bring back is when I started going down the strap plan piece, yeah. the one piece that I do want to recommend, and I've already recommended this, and it's in play with two of our clients right now, is I think all operational leaders should get a copy of the report. But what I think is, uh, is not as apparent is I am making this as... I can't make it mandatory because I'm a consultant, mm. but I make this as one of the top recommended reads as people revisit their strap plans. Yeah, yeah. Because how can you... If this is... Well, it's the first time I've seen it at this comprehensive level. If you want to make what we refer to as an educated and informed decision and the the, the data is available, mm. get the data and yeah. make sure every one of your board members has a copy of it so that you can do the informed decision yeah. moving yeah. forward. It's a good point, Mark. And, you know, good decision making is all about <clears throat> having a good context. And the context has changed since 2019. Totally. If you're making decisions on strap planning based on how you view the world in 2019, you're going to have an obsolete plan. So the, the whole purpose of commissioning this report and getting it done was to try to understand what context looks like now. So, Well, and I think the, the other mandatory no, recommended read, so we've put this forward to two clients that it will, one doesn't have a strap plan mm. and the other one has a strap plan that was mm. delivered in January of 2020. Right. So they're revisiting it. Mm. Both, we've said these are recommended reads for to make decisions and the primary one is I'm working on the HR side of both of those pro both of those clients. It's so that they don't go with a blinder mentality on mm. what it's going to cost to get the right staff yeah. and train the right staff. And then the other one that's very handy for those, and it's uh, it is Canadian developed, but it's got some great stuff. The uh, the Chartered Professional Accountants do yeah. some great what they call 20 question series yes and i've just learned last week that they're going back to revisiting them post pandemic mm -hmm. not all out yet but that combination yeah. but this to me is the most comprehensive mm -hmm. that the the cpa stuff you can be specific yeah but get it in the hands of your boards and if you're an operational leader listening to this mm -hmm. The cost of doing it to make sure that they don't screw up your operational decisions because they've got blinders on 
It's it's too important, guys. Inform your board. Inform your board. Inform your board. Totally. I mean, it, you know, you, the cost of not doing that is is huge. The reward of doing it is, is so. Very two high. things, Paul. Before we close, before you close, because I like to talk, I want to go <laughs> back to one one thing that we were talking about in the beginning was on page nine of the report. I, I'm not mm. going to do the math because dyslexia will make me do it wrong. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting was this just jumped off the page at me. So it said. Um, you've got a great chart that says elements preventing amateur sports from returning to 2019 levels. Yeah, player enrollment for mm. sure. Uh, financial resources, access to capabilities, fine. Mm. But if you aggregate up all of the people factor, yeah. it's the biggest thing. Yeah. You've got coaching capacity, overall staff capacity, and executive leadership capacity. And high on there is other non-coaching volunteer capacity. Yeah. That's human resource capacity. Right. That is. If you added up all of those four, it crushes all the other oh, ones. Wait, it, it, flowing through this entire report is the one thing holding the system back is people. Totally. Um, and I don't know if that was probably the case in 2019 anyway. Just COVID has just really exposed it. But honestly, folks, we're in a people business. Take your people seriously. Yeah. Paid or, paid or volunteer. Yeah. But, and again, if you go into the conclusion, I thought <coughs> this was great, Paul. I said, you know, you're, you're, you start talking about staffing here right, mm -hmm. at, right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. From the recommendation side of things, your volunteerism comes into play, risk comes into play. The other one that I'm sure you'll talk about with someone that's smarter than me on the finance side of this is the, the number that hit me is the amount of uh, – clubs running their base registration yeah. at below cost yeah scary pardon scary how do you run a business at below cost somebody else is paying for it so it's probably some contingent grants or but but it's just it's and from a financial risk standpoint that is just walking on yeah. shells but yeah well, well that number was crazy crazy yeah yeah so 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 don't tell me the sports system isn't trying to make itself affordable it's actually almost killing itself trying to do that and that's just not sustainable long no, term. Certainly not. Certainly not. Mark, before I let you go, um, what does 2023 hold, you think, from an amateur sports staffing standpoint? Uh, I think it's a one, I think if you've retained your staff through COVID, hmm. I think you got to make sure you take care of them in 2023. Right. Because they're fried. So it's a retention issue. It's a retention issue, but it's also a respect issue. Okay. Because one of the things that drives me nuts with the sports system is, depending on the cycle of sport, they say, well, we all take our vacation in September, the non-sport month. Hmm. People can't, corporations don't run like that. No. So how do we expect people taking care of our kids that, I mean, my kids are over 25 hours a week. Hmm. And I'm going to say to the coach, well, actually, no, you get to work 54 days straight. Mm. and say that that's okay mm. you got to take care of your staff right now and that's mm. i'm not saying pay them more i'm saying respect them that they need mm. a day off exactly and respect that you're going to invest in them so i i think for 2023 get your staffing models right and look at them i think you've got to care for your staff in 2023 you've got to give them feedback mm. and so if you're sitting if you're listening to this and a register room remains and you're a board mm. And you don't have a performance management or performance development plan that you're expecting from your staff, you're missing an opportunity. Mm. Now, for the board members listening, your job is only the top people. Mm. But your job is also to make sure that there's one in the system. That's right. But I would suggest I'm probably below 
30% of my clients yeah. understand that and execute against it. But it's interesting. You, I mean, your outlook for next year is just basically spend more time on your people. Yeah. I mean, you listed a number of ways you can do that, yeah. but it's just stop taking this important resource for granted. Yeah. It's the most important thing you do. Get it right. Your organization will run well. Get it wrong. You'll persistently have problems. Stop blaming things you can't control as to why you don't have volunteers or staff because a lot of it is actually within your control. Totally. There are lots of organizations who are doing very well. Um, and this, in, you know, this pandemic, I won't say it didn't impact them, but it wasn't catastrophic for them. And they still have people. Why? Because they take this stuff seriously. So, yeah. Look, Mark, always a pleasure to have you in the Regista Room. It certainly won't be the last time we, we have you in. And any Regista Roomers out there looking particularly for senior sport leadership or sport leadership or operation leadership, as Mark calls it, uh, in your organization, there's no one I could recommend more than, than Mark Thompson. He's done a lot of work this year uh, in, the, in the amateur sports space and knows the market very well and has a tremendous uh, bank of connections with key people that can match your organization. So reach out to him at mark at mckinneysolutions.com. Correct. And he will be more than happy to chat with you about what you need. I'll just add to that the, the, the one learning that we did during COVID, that mm. I, I, I think you know, Paul, is, yeah, love to talk about the executive side of things. We had two executive directors of small institutions. So mm. one at six staff and mm. one at three. Mm. Both have asked for help because their hires are so critical coming out of pandemic. Yeah. So we adjusted what they are, our solution to what they needed. Yeah. So I just want to throw that out there that it's not just executive no. because in a staff of three, you get that hire wrong, yeah. it can really screw things up. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. They be, I mean, they become pivotal to what you're able to do. So those, yeah, I mean, those those small organs, and they're of tough positions to fill because they've got to be master of so many different Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, good. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the Regista Room. Look forward to seeing you again next time. Thanks for having me. Hey, amateur soccer club leaders. Are you looking for a complete reference on how to run a great amateur soccer club, but all you can find are books on how to coach kids? Introducing Amazon's number one bestseller, Don't Blame Your Soccer Parents, your complete guide on how to run a successful amateur soccer club, covering everything from managing your boardroom to overseeing your director of coaching or raising corporate sponsorship. Based on real-world experiences from internationally renowned sports consultant and professional speaker Paul Berry, don't blame the soccer parents rolls its sleeves up and tackles all the hands-on club management issues you need to master. Governance, planning, staffing, volunteers, finance, technical oversight, marketing, evaluation, and more. You'll find it all in the most comprehensive soccer club management reference on the market today. Pick up your copy on the Amazon platform or at don'tblamethesoccerparents.com today. So there you have it, a lot to unpack and naturally you must get a hold of your copy of the Canadian Amateur Sport Health Check to get a clear picture of staff counts in your peer amateur sport organizations, as well as salary levels and much more beyond. And talking to Mark, I think a few things really struck out to me. Firstly, how the same issues continue to plague our industry, even a global pandemic doesn't seem to have changed our lack of attention to the vital matter of our people, how we attract them, nurture them, develop them, motivate them, and reward them. And secondly, we continue to underpay our people, but Mark highlighted the important reality that pay doesn't determine where people work. Well, not the right people anyway. 
We continue to undersell what a privilege it is, a privilege it is to work in amateur sport. What we offer can't be replaced by dollars. I talk about this a bit in my book, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents. Remind yourself, your people, and those you are trying to attract, what you offer beyond cash. In this post-pandemic period of heavy focus on life as part of work-life balance, we have assets that are hard for government or commercial business as employers to replicate, so use them. And thirdly, when are we finally going to get the memo and start professionally developing our staff? The number of amateur sports staff, particularly those in leadership roles, who look lonely at best and broken at worst, is staggering. I get calls every week from people just asking for advice because their employer is literally leaving it all up to them. It's just not good enough. It wasn't before, and it certainly isn't now. Develop your people. It's in your interest and nothing more than what you would expect if you were in their shoes. My name is Paul Varian, and you're in the Register Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to the next time. In the meantime, stay safe and stay well. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. Join us again for the next episode. Subscribe today at capituslearning.com or listen wherever you access your favorite podcasts.